Section 8 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beeman on the Atonement, Part 2. Our immediate object, however, is to call attention to the entire absence of all scriptural support for this theory. We have already shown that the only passage directly referred to does not teach what it is cited to prove, and that, if it did, it would give no support to the theory built upon it. The surprising fact, however, should be more distinctly noticed, that while the Bible is said to be full of the doctrine of atonement, scarcely an attempt is made to prove its nature from the Bible. Christ is said to be a sacrifice, to bear our sins, to be a propitiation, a ransom, etc., etc., but no attempt is made to tell us what all this means. There is no examination of the terms, no elucidation of the meaning they bore in the age of the apostles. The writer does not even pretend to found his theory upon them. In the chapter in which he gives his own view of the nature of the atonement, they are scarcely even mentioned. The whole affair is a piece of pure rationalistic speculation, formed on certain principles of moral philosophy, which have nothing to do with the Bible. It is assumed that happiness is the end of all things, that to promote happiness is the essence of virtue, that the prevention of crime which causes misery is the end of punishment, that the death of Christ, as it tends to prevent crime, supersedes the necessity of punishment. There is the theory, and we can hardly avoid saying that it has more affinity with Jeremy Bentham and the greatest happiness system than it has with the Bible or with the sympathies of Christians. Our next remark on this theory is that it is perfectly arbitrary. The Bible teaches that Christ was a sacrifice, that he bore our sins, that the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, that he propitiated God, was a ransom, was made sin, that we might be righteous. These and similar statements set forth the nature of the atonement. There are many others describing some of its manifold effects. It declares the justice of God, exhibited his wisdom, set us an example, purifies his people, and in short glorifies God, and promotes the best interests of his kingdom. If you take in the former statements, there is perfect unity in all these representations. The work of Christ is a display of the justice and love of God. It leads men to repentance and exerts this moral influence on the universe because it is a satisfaction to divine justice and answers the demands of his law. But if the scriptural account of its nature be rejected, then it is a matter to be arbitrarily decided which of its effects shall be selected as determining its character. If Dr. Beeman says it is an atonement because it expresses God's regard to the order and welfare of his government, Sosinus may say, it is an atonement because it assures us of the love of God. The one is just as much right as the other, for both are right as far as they go, but both are arbitrary in selecting what suits their taste or their philosophy and rejecting all the rest. Dr. Beeman does not pretend that his doctrine is taught in those passages of Scripture which really describe the nature of the atonement, neither does Sosinus. Both say all that is figurative. The one says its nature is to be inferred from one of its effects, the other from another. The one considers it as designed mainly to teach God's rectoral justice, the other his love. It is perfectly plain that, on this plan, the citadel is surrendered. Dr. Beeman can have nothing to say to the Sassinian, which the Sassinian cannot retort to Dr. Beeman. Both admit that we are saved by the death of Christ, one affirming that it is because it brings us to repentance, and thus makes our forgiveness consistent with the character of God and the interests of his kingdom. The other, that it is because it reconciles forgiveness with the good of the universe in a different way. 
It may also on this ground be made a fair subject of debate, which view really assigns more importance to the death of Christ. Is it clear that fear is more conservative than love, that the exhibition of God's regard to law would have a greater effect in promoting holiness than the exhibition of his mercy? We very much doubt it, and we confess ourselves very much at a loss to see why the Socinian view of the design of the Redeemer's death should be regarded as a rejection of the doctrine of atonement, if his death was merely designed to exert a conservative influence on the moral government of God. Certain it is that this is not the doctrine against which the early Socinians contended. It is further plain that the principles of interpretation which Dr. Beeman is obliged to adopt to reconcile his theory with the Bible are all that is wanted to serve the purpose of Socinians. They both deny that we are to take the language of Scripture according to its common and appropriate sense, and agreeably to the mode of thinking prevalent in the age in which it was uttered. The vastly different views entertained by Dr. Beeman and Sosinus as to the person of Christ make, of course, a corresponding difference in their whole religious system. But as to the nature of the atonement, we have always considered the ground advocated by Dr. Beeman as utterly untenable against the arguments of Socinians. It is a rejection of the scriptural account, and after that is done, one theory has as much authority as another. Our third remark is that this theory, besides being independent of Scripture and perfectly arbitrary, is directly opposed to the explicit teaching of the Word of God. Be it remembered that the Bible is admitted to be full of the doctrine of the atonement, that is, it is the great central point in the religion of redeemed man. It is also admitted that God has revealed not only the fact that we are saved by the obedience and death of Christ, but also the way in which this work is efficacious to that end. The Socinian says it is by its moral effect upon man. Dr. Beeman says it is from its tendency to prevent crimes and preserve the order of the universe. The common faith of Christendom is that Christ saves us by satisfying the demands of law and justice in our stead. As the Bible is full of this doctrine, it must enable us to decide which of these views is right, for the Bible was intended to teach us the way of salvation. We are taught then first that Christ bore our sins, Hebrews 9.28, 1 Peter 2.24, Isaiah 53.12, etc. It cannot be disputed that the usual scriptural meaning of the expression to bear sin is to bear the punishment due to sin, Leviticus 22.9. If they keep not my ordinance, they shall bear sin for it. Numbers 18.22, 14.33, Leviticus 5, verses 1 and 17. He is guilty and shall bear his iniquity, Ezekiel 18.20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither the father bear the iniquity of the son. No one doubts that this means the son shall not be punished for the sins of the father, nor the father for the sins of the son. When therefore these scriptures say that Christ bore our sins, they say in express terms that he bore the punishment of our sins. This is rendered the more certain because he bore them by suffering or by dying, and because the scriptures express the same idea in so many other ways. This account of the nature of the atonement is found not only in poetical descriptions of Christ's sufferings, but in the most didactic portions of the Bible. The language used had an established sense in the minds of those to whom it was addressed, and could not fail to understand it according to its obvious meaning. That meaning, therefore, we are bound, by all the sound rules of interpretation, to believe the sacred writers intended to convey. How does Dr. Beeman answer this? 
does he attempt to show that the phrase to bear sin does commonly mean to bear the punishment of sin, or that it has not that meaning when used in reference to Christ? As far as we have been able to find, he contents himself with some general remarks against taking figurative language in its literal sense. He subjects the passages in which the phrase in question occurs to no critical examination. He makes no attempt to show that figurative language may not convey a definite meaning, or that that meaning is not to be learnt from usage and the known opinions of those to whom it is addressed. It is enough for him that he does not like the truth which the passages in question would then teach, that he cannot see how the innocent could so take the place of the guilty as to bear their punishment, that he cannot reconcile this doctrine with the justice of God, nor with his views of other portions of Scripture. In the meantime, the plain meaning of the Scriptures stands, and those who find all other scriptural representations consistent with that meaning, and to whom it is in fact the very ground of their hope towards God, will receive it gladly, and in all its simplicity. The theory of Dr. Beeman, then, which denies that Christ suffered the penalty due to our sins, must be admitted to be in direct conflict with these express declarations of the Word of God. Secondly, the Scriptures, in order to teach us the nature of atonement, say that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice unto God. What, then, is, according to the Scriptures, a sacrifice for sins? The essence of a propitiatory sacrifice, says Storr, is the forgiveness of sin through the transfer of punishment from the actual offender to another. The moderate Bishop Burnett says the notion of an expiatory sacrifice, which was then, when the New Testament was writ, well understood all the world over, both by Jews and Gentiles, was this, that the sin of one person was transferred on a man or beast, who upon that was devoted or offered to God, and suffered in the room of the offending person, and by this oblation, the punishment of the sin being laid on the sacrifice, an expiation was made for sin, and the sinner was believed to be reconciled to God. That this is the correct view of the scriptural doctrine concerning sacrifices may be inferred, one, from its being confessedly the light in which they were generally regarded by the Jews and by the whole ancient world, and from its being a simple and natural explanation of the service. On this hypothesis, everything is significant and intelligible. 2. From the express didactic statements of the Bible. The life is said to be in the blood, and I have given it to you as an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Life. Leviticus 17.11. The very nature of the service, then, was the substitution of life for life. The life forfeited was redeemed by the life paid. 3. From all the rites connected with the service and all the expressions employed concerning it, there was to be confession of sin, imposition of hands, as expressing the idea of transfer and substitution. The sins were said to be laid on the head of the victim, which was then put to death, or, as in the case of the scapegoat, dismissed into the wilderness, and another goat sacrificed in its place. All these directions plainly teach that the nature of expiatory offerings consisted in the substitution of the victim for the offender, and in the infliction of the penalty of death incurred by the one upon the other. 4. That this is the scriptural doctrine on this subject is made still plainer by the fact that all that is taught by saying that the Messiah bore our sins, that our iniquities were laid upon him, that he bore our sorrow, that the chastisement of our peace was laid on him, is expressed by the prophet, by saying, he made his soul an offering for sin. Then an offering for sin is one on whom sin is laid, who bears sins, i.e., as has been shown, the penalty due to sin. 5. 
This view of this subject is further confirmed by a consideration of the effects ascribed to these sacrifices. They made atonement, they propitiated God, they secured the remission of the penalty incurred. When an Israelite had committed an offence by which he forfeited his standing in the theocracy, that is, the favour of God as his theocratical leader, he brought to the priest the appointed sacrifice, made confession of his sin, the victim was slain in his place, and he was restored to his standing and saved from being cut off from his people. These sacrifices always produced their effects. They always secured the remission of the theocratical penalty for which they were offered and accepted. Whether they secured the forgiveness of the soul before God depended on the state of mind of the offerer. Of themselves they had no such efficacy, since it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. But nothing is plainer from Scripture than that the way in which the Israelites obtained the remission of the civil or theocratical penalties which they had incurred was intended to teach us how sin is pardoned in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. If then the Bible, according to the almost unanimous judgment of Christians, teaches that the idea of an expiatory sacrifice is that by vicarious punishment justice is satisfied and sin forgiven, if this was the view taken of them by Jews and Gentiles, then does the Bible, in so constantly representing Christ as a propitiation, as a lamb, as a sacrifice for sin, expressly teach that he bore the penalty due to our sins, that he satisfied divine justice, and secured, for all in whose behalf that sacrifice is accepted, the pardon of sin and restoration to the divine favour. To talk of figure here is out of the question. Admit that the language is figurative, the question is, what idea was it intended to convey? Beyond doubt, that which the sacred writers knew with certainty would be attached to it by their immediate readers, and which in fact has been attached to it in all ages of the church. Footnote. It is not possible for us to preserve, says Bishop Burnett, any reverence for the New Testament or the writers of it, so far as to think them even honest men, not to say inspired men, if we can imagine that in so sacred and important a matter they could exceed so much as to represent that a sacrifice which is not truly so. This is a subject which will not bear figures and amplifications. It must be treated strictly and with a just exactness of expression. Burnett on the 39 articles, the same page quoted above. End footnote to tell a conscience-stricken Israelite that a sacrifice was designed either to impress on his mind or the mind of others with the truth that God is just or benevolent would have been a mockery. It was to him an atonement, a propitiation, a vicarious punishment, or it was nothing. And it is no less a mockery to tell a convinced sinner that the death of Christ was designed to lead him to repentance or to preserve the good order of the universe. Unless the Redeemer was a sacrifice on whom our sins were laid, who bore the penalty we had incurred, it is to such a sinner no atonement and no adequate ground of confidence towards God. Footnote. The innate sense of divine justice which all men possess demands that the sinner should receive his due, that the stroke he has given to the law should recoil upon himself. The deeper his sense of guilt, the less he can be satisfied with mere pardon, and the more does he demand punishment, for by punishment he is justified. Whence do we derive this intimate persuasion of God's justice? Not from without, because men, as empirically guided, regard freedom from suffering as the highest good. It must therefore be implanted in our nature by God himself. The holiness of God, which reveals itself to the sinner by the connection between suffering and transgression, has therefore a witness for itself in every human breast. 
Hence, on the one hand, the proclamation of pardon and reconciliation could not satisfy the conscience of the sinner, unless his guilt had been atoned for by punishment, and, on the other hand, divine love could not offer its blessings to the sinner, unless holiness was revealed together with love. It was therefore necessary that suffering, commensurate with the apostasy of man, should be endured, which men would impute to themselves as their own. Such was the suffering, inward and outward, of the Redeemer. Two things were necessary. One, that those sufferings should correspond to, entsprechen, the greatness of the sin of mankind. Two, that the sinner could rightly impute them to himself. Tollock. Beilage 2 zum Hebräerbrief, page 104. There is more real and precious truth, according to our judgment, in that short paragraph than in all Dr. Beeman's book. End footnote. Again, it is a part of the common faith of the Church that Jesus Christ is a true and proper priest, that what was symbolical and figurative with regard to other priests is real as it regards him. He is called a priest. It is proved that he has all the qualifications for the office, that he was divinely appointed, that he performed all its duties, secures all its benefits, and that his priesthood supersedes all others. We are accordingly commanded to come to him in the character of a priest, to commit our souls into his hands, that he may reconcile us to God, and make intercession for us. This is the scriptural method of representing the manner in which Christ saves us, and the nature of his work. Dr. Beeman, in his chapter on the fact of the atonement, which is directed against Socinians, avails himself of all the usual sources of scriptural proof, and, in the course of the chapter, is forced to speak of Christ as a sacrifice and a priest. But when he comes to the exposition of his views of the nature of the atonement, he finds it expedient, and even necessary, to leave that mode of representation entirely out of view. We hear no more of propitiating God, of Christ as a sacrifice, of his character as a priest, it is now all moral government, the order and interest of the universe, symbolical teaching, exhibition of truth and motives. Why is all this? Why does not Dr. Beeman's doctrine admit of being thrown into the scriptural form? Why must the terms sacrifice, priest, propitiation be discarded when teaching the nature of the atonement? For the very obvious reason that there is an entire incongruity between his views and the word of God. What has a sacrifice and priest to do with governmental display? This fact alone works the condemnation of Dr. Beeman's whole theory. His plan of salvation, his method of access to God, is irreconcilable with that represented in the Scriptures. There we are taught that, as the Israelite who had offended came to the priest, who made an atonement for him in the appointed way, and thus reconciled him to God, so the penitent sinner must come to Christ as his high priest, who satisfies the divine justice by presenting his own merits before God, and whoever lives to make intercession for him. Would this representation ever lead a human being to imagine that Christ merely makes pardon possible, that his death was a symbolical lesson to the universe? According to Dr. Beeman's theory, Christ is not a priest. We are under no necessity of recognizing him as such, nor of committing ourselves into his hands, nor of relying on his merits and intercession. A mere possibility of salvation for all men is all that Christ has accomplished. But does this make him a high priest in the scriptural and universally received sense of the term? A third method by which the scriptures teach us the nature of the atonement is by express declarations concerning the nature of his sufferings or the immediate design of his death. It is expressly taught that his sufferings were penal, that he endured the penalty of the law, and that he thus suffered not for himself but for us. 
This is a point about which there is so much strange misconception that it is necessary to explain the meaning of the terms here used. The sufferings of rational beings are either calamities having no reference to sin, or chastisement designed for the improvement of the sufferer, or penal when designed for the satisfaction of justice. Now, what is meant by the language above used is that the sufferings of Christ were not mere calamities, neither were they chastisements in the sense just stated, nor were they simply exemplary, nor merely symbolical, designed to teach this or that truth, but that they were penal, i.e. designed to satisfy divine justice. This is the distinctive character assigned to them in Scripture. Again, by the penalty of the law is meant that suffering which the law demands as a satisfaction to justice, it is not any specific kind or degree of suffering, for it varies both as to degree and kind, in every supposable case of its infliction. The sufferings of no two men that ever lived are precisely alike, in this world or the next, unless their constitution, temperament, sins, feelings, and circumstances were precisely alike, which is absolutely incredible. The objection, therefore, stated by Sicinians, that Christ did not suffer the penalty of the law because he did not suffer remorse, despair, or eternal banishment from God, was answered by cotemporary theologians by denying that those things entered essentially into the penalty of the law. The penalty is in Scripture called death, which includes every kind of evil inflicted on divine justice in punishment of sin, and inasmuch as Christ suffered such evil, and to such a degree as fully satisfied divine justice, he suffered what the scriptures call the penalty of the law. It is not the nature but the relation of sufferings to the law which gives them their distinctive character. What degree of suffering the law demands, as it varies in every specific case, God only can determine. The sufferings of Christ were unutterably great." Still with one voice, Papists, Lutherans, and Reformed rebutted the objection of Sosinus that the transient sufferings of one man could not be equivalent to the sufferings due to the sins of men, by referring not to the degree of the Saviour's anguish as equal to the misery due to all for whom he died, but to the infinite dignity of his person. It was the Lord of glory who was crucified. As the bodily sufferings of a man are referred to his whole person, so the scriptures refer the sufferings of Christ's human nature to his whole person. And he was divine and not a human person, but a divine person with a human nature. This is an awful subject on which all irreverent speculation must be very offensive to God. Let it be enough to say with the scriptures that Christ suffered the penalty of the law in our stead, and that the penalty of the law was that kind and amount of suffering which from such a person was a full satisfaction to the divine justice. All that our standards say on this point, they say wisely, viz. that the Saviour endured the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the accursed death of the cross, and continued under the power of death for a time. This was the penalty of the law, for the wrath of God, however expressed, constitutes that penalty in its strictest and highest sense." that the scriptures do teach that Christ's sufferings were penal, has already been proved from those passages in which he is said to bear our sins, that our iniquities were laid upon him, that he suffered the chastisement of our peace, and that as a sacrifice he endured the death which we had incurred. The same truth is expressed still more explicitly in Galatians 3.13. The apostle thus argues, The law pronounces accursed all who do not obey every command, no man has ever rendered this perfect obedience, therefore all men are under the curse. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. There can be no doubt what the apostle means when he says that all men are under the curse. 
nor when he says, Cursed is every one who continueth not in all things written in the law to do them. Neither can it be doubted what he means when he says, Christ was made a curse. The three expressions, under the curse, accursed, and made a curse, cannot mean essentially different things. If the former mean that were exposed to the penalty, the latter must mean that Christ endured the penalty. He hath redeemed us from the curse by bearing it in our stead. Footnote. In this interpretation, every modern commentator, of whom we have any knowledge, concurs, as for example, Copper, Flood, Wiener, Usteri, Matthias, Rückert, de Wetter. What the Apostle adds in the next verse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that is hung upon a tree, is evidently intended to justify from Scripture the use of the word curse. Those publicly exposed as suffering the sentence of the law are called cursed. Hence Christ, though perfectly holy, did bear the sentence of the law, the word may be properly applied to him. End footnote. To the same effect, the Apostle speaks in Romans 8.3, what the law could not do, i.e. affect the justification of men, in that it was weak through the flesh, that God did, having sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, or as a sin offering, he was condemned, i.e. punished in the flesh, i.e. in him who was clothed in our nature. This passage agrees as to the principal point with one cited from Galatians. The sentence which we had incurred was carried into effect upon the Redeemer, in order that we might be delivered from the law under which we were justly condemned. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle, in urging men to be reconciled to God, presents the nature and mode of the atonement as the ground of his exhortation. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The only sense in which Christ, who was free from all sin, could be made sin, was by having our sins laid upon him, and the only way in which our sins could be laid upon him was by his so assuming our place as to endure in our stead the penalty we had incurred. God made him to be sin, says De Vetter, in that he laid on him the punishment of sin. Here again we have precisely the same doctrine, taught under all the other forms of expression already considered, Christ was made sin, as we in him are made righteous men. We are justified, he was condemned. We are freed from the penalty, he endured it. He was treated as justice required the sinner to be treated. We are treated according to his merits, and not our own deserts. Fourthly, there are various other forms under which these scriptures set forth the nature of Christ's death, which the limits of a review forbid our considering. He has redeemed us, he has purchased us, he gave himself as a ransom, etc., it is readily admitted that all these terms are often used in a wide sense to express the general idea of deliverance without reference to the mode by which that deliverance is effected. It cannot, however, be denied that they properly express deliverance by purchase, i.e. by the payment of what is considered equivalent to the thing or person redeemed. In the Bible, it is not simply said that Christ has delivered us, nor is it said he delivered us by power, nor by teaching, but by his death, by his own precious blood, by giving himself, by being made a curse for us. Such representations cannot fail to convey the idea of a redemption in the proper sense of the term, and therefore teach the true nature of the atonement. We are redeemed. That which was given for us was of infinite value. If the scriptures thus teach that Christ saves us by bearing our sins, or being made a sin offering in our place, 
Then the more general expressions, such as he died for us, he gave himself for us, we are saved by his death, his blood, his cross, and others of a similar kind, are all to be understood in accordance with these more explicit statements. To the pious reader of the New Testament, therefore, the precious truth that Christ died as a substitute, enduring in his own person the death which we had incurred, redeeming us from the curse by being made a curse for us, meets him upon almost every page and confirms his confidence in the truth and exalts his estimate of its value by this frequency of repetition and variety of statement. Fifthly, there is still another consideration in proof of the unscriptural character of Dr. Beeman's theory, which is too important to be overlooked. The Apostle, in unfolding the plan of redemption, proceeds on the assumption that men are under a law, or covenant, which demands perfect obedience, and which threatens death in case of transgression. He then shows that no man, whether Jew or Gentile, can fulfill the conditions of that covenant, or so obey the law as to claim justification on the ground of his own righteousness. Still, as this law is perfectly righteous, it cannot be arbitrarily set aside. What then was to be done? What hope can there be for the salvation of sinners? The apostle answers by saying that what the law could not do, that is, save men, God has accomplished by the mission of his Son. But how does the Son save us? This is the very question before us. It relates to the nature of the work of Christ, which Dr. Beeman has undertaken to discuss. Paul's answer to that question is that Christ saves us by being made under the law and fulfilling all its demands. He fulfilled all righteousness. He knew no sin. He was holy, harmless, and separate from sinners. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, and thus endured the death which the law threatened against sin. He has thus redeemed us from the law, that is, we are no longer under obligation to satisfy in our own person its demands in order to our justification. The perfect righteousness of Christ is offered as the ground of justification, and all who accept of that righteousness by faith have it so imputed to them that they can plead it as their own, and God has promised to accept it to their salvation. We can hardly persuade ourselves that any ordinary reader of the Bible can deny that this is a correct representation of the manner in which Paul preached the gospel. It is the burden of all his writings, it is the gospel itself as it lay in his mind and as he presented it to others. It is the whole subject of the first eight chapters of his Epistle to the Romans and of all the doctrinal part of his Epistle to the Galatians. In the former of these epistles, he shows that there are but two methods of justification, the one by our own righteousness and the other by the righteousness of God. Having shown that no man has or can have an adequate righteousness of his own, he shows that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, that is, the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ, and which is upon all them that believe. This righteousness is so complete that God is just in justifying those who have the faith by which it is received and appropriated. He afterwards illustrates this great doctrine of imputed righteousness by a reference to the case of Adam, and shows that, as on account of the offence of one man, a sentence of condemnation passed on all men, so, on account of the righteousness of one man, the free gift of justification has come upon all. As by the disobedience of one the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one the many are made righteous. It is involved in all this that we are no longer under the law, no longer subject to its demand of a perfect personal righteousness, but justified by a righteousness that satisfies its widest claims. 
Hence, the apostle so frequently asserts, ye are not under the law, ye are free from the law. But how? Not by abrogating the law or by dispensing with its righteous claims, but legally, as a woman is free from her husband, not by deserting him, not by repudiating his authority, but by his ceasing to have any claim to her, which continues only so long as he lives. So we are freed from the law by the body of Christ, i.e. by his death. He was made under the law that he might redeem them who are under the law. He hath redeemed us from its curse by being made a curse for us. He has taken away the handwriting which was against us, nailing it to the cross. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because we are, by this gospel, freed from the law and its condemnation. Hence Paul teaches that if righteousness, that is, what satisfies the demands of the law, could have come in any other way, Christ is dead in vain. How exclusively this righteousness of Christ was the ground of the Apostle's personal confidence is plain from his pregnant declarations to the Philippians, that he counted all things but dung, that he might win Christ and be found in him, not having his own righteousness, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. With this representation of the plan of salvation, Dr. Beeman's theory is utterly irreconcilable. According to his theory, the demands of the law have not been satisfied. The relation of the sinner to the curse which this law pronounces against the transgressor is legally, not evangelically, just the same that it was without an atonement. Quote, the law has the same demand upon him and utters the same denunciation of wrath against him. The law, or justice, that is distributive justice, as expressed in the law, has received no satisfaction at all. End quote, page 133. What then has Christ's atonement done for us? He has simply opened the way for pardon. All that the atonement has done for the sinner, says Dr. Beeman, is to place him within the reach of pardon, page 137. The way is now open, mercy can now operate, the door is open, page 106. The atonement was required and made in order to open a consistent way for the publication of pardon or for the exercise of grace to sinners, page 124. This theory directly contradicts the Apostle's doctrine, one, because he teaches that Christ was made under the law for the purpose of redeeming them that are under the law, and that he was made a curse for us. We are therefore delivered from the law as a covenant of works, and are not subject to its demands and its curse when united to him. Two, because it virtually denies that Christ wrought out any righteousness which is the ground of our justification. He merely makes pardon possible, whereas Paul says that by his obedience we are made righteous, that we become the righteousness of God in him. On this new theory, the language of the Apostle, when he speaks of not having his own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ, is unintelligible. 3. It destroys the very nature of justification, which is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed unto us and received by faith alone. But according to this theory, there is no such thing as justification. We are merely pardoned. In Scripture, however, and in all languages, the idea of pardon and justification are distinct and, in a measure, opposite. Footnote. The word vikeun, says de Vetter, means not merely negatively to pardon, but also affirmatively to declare righteous. End footnote. If we are justified, we are declared righteous. That is, it is declared that, as concerns us, on some ground or for some reason, the law is satisfied. And that reason, Paul says, must either be our own righteousness or the righteousness of Christ. 
Dr. Beeman's theory admits of no such idea of justification. The sinner is merely forgiven because the death of Christ prevents such forgiveness doing any harm. This is not what the Bible teaches when it speaks of our being made the righteousness of God in Christ, or of His imputing righteousness to us, or of our receiving the gift of righteousness. This is not what the convinced sinner needs, to whom not mere pardon but justification on the ground of a righteousness which, though not his own, is his, as wrought out for him and bestowed by the free gift of God, is necessary to peace with God. Romans 5.1 4. It destroys the nature of justifying faith and deranges the whole plan of salvation. In accordance with the Scriptures, faith in Jesus Christ is, in our standards, declared to be a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation, as He is offered to us in the Gospel. This is perfectly natural and intelligible if Christ is our righteousness. If His work of obedience and death is the sole ground of justification before God, then we understand what the Bible means by believing upon Christ, putting our trust in Him, being found in Him, then the phrase faith of Christ, which so often occurs as expressing the idea of a faith of which he is the object, has its appropriate meaning. Then too we understand what is meant by coming to Christ, receiving Christ, putting on Christ, being in Christ. Upon Dr. Beeman's theory, however, all this is well nigh unintelligible. We admit that a vague sense may be put on these expressions on any theory of the atonement, even that of the Socinians. If the death of Christ is necessary to salvation, either, as they say, by revealing the love of God, or, as Dr. Beeman says, by revealing his regard for law, then to believe in Christ or to receive Christ might be said to mean to believe the truth that without the revelation made by his death, God would not forgive sin. But how far is this from being the full and natural import of the terms? Who would ever express mere acquiescence in the fact that Christ has made salvation possible by saying, I would be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ. The fact is, the Socinian view is in some respects much easier reconciled with Scripture than that of Dr. Beeman. The passage just quoted, for example, might have this meaning, viz. We must have not the moral excellence which the law can give, but that inward righteousness of which faith in Christ is the source. This would have some plausibility, but what the righteousness which is by faith of Jesus Christ can mean as opposed to our own righteousness on Dr. Beeman's ground, it is hard to conceive. Again, according to the Bible and the common doctrine of the Church, when a sinner is convinced of his sin and misery, of his entire unworthiness in the sight of God, he is to be directed to renounce all dependence upon himself and to believe in Christ, that is, to place all his confidence in him. But if Christ has only made salvation possible, if he has merely brought the sinner within the reach of mercy, this is a most unnatural direction. What has the sinner to come to Christ for? Why should he be directed to receive or submit to the righteousness of God? Christ has nothing to do with him. He has made salvation possible and his work is done. What the sinner has to do is to submit to God. The way is open. Let him lay aside his rebellion and begin to love and serve his maker. Such are the directions which this theory would lead its advocates to give those who are convinced of their sin and danger. This is not a mere imagination. Such are the directions commonly and characteristically given by those who adopt Dr. Beeman's view of the atonement. Christ disappears in a great measure from his own gospel. You may take up volume after volume of their sermons and you will find excellent discourses upon sin, obligation, moral government, regeneration, divine sovereignty, etc., but the cross is comparatively kept out of view. 
Christ has no immediate work in the sinner's salvation, and accordingly the common directions to those who ask what they must do to be saved are submit to God, choose Him and His service, or something of similar import. To such an extreme has this been carried by some whose logical consistency has overcome the influence of scriptural language and traditionary instruction, that they have not hesitated to say that the command, believe in Christ, is obsolete. It was the proper test of submission in the apostolic age, but in our day, when all men recognize Christ as the Messiah, it is altogether inappropriate. We doubt not that thousands who agree substantially with Dr. Beeman would be shocked at this language. Nevertheless, it is the legitimate consequence of his theory. If the atonement is a mere governmental display, a mere symbolical method of instruction, then the command to believe in Christ, to come to him, to trust in him and his righteousness, is not the language in which sinners should be addressed. It does not inform them of the specific thing which they must do in order to be saved. Christ has opened the door. Their business is now immediately with God. End of section 8